you have no control over it. So you have a bunch of people judging your career. Right or wrong, it's probably wrong. You feel like when you didn't make it, they're telling you you're not good enough. But as anyone will tell you, get to the Hall of Fame, once you hear your name and once they tell you you're in, it doesn't matter. Whether you had to wait a long time or your first ballot, you're in the Hall of Fame. It's all that really matters. I'm Chris Long, and this is American Prodigies Becoming Great. On this podcast, we highlight the fascinating career journeys of current and former football players. Each episode, we take you on a trip through a player's life, and along the way, explore what it means to be great. Because greatness comes in all shapes and sizes, and every path is one of a kind. Today, we're going to dig into the story of a man who was the first draft pick for an entire franchise. He's a man who had a McDonald's burger named after him. An honor I take damn seriously. This guy played left tackle in the NFL for just seven years, but boy, did he make them count. 91 games, only 15 and a half sacks allowed. That's dominance. That's rare talent. That's a career, short or not, that earns you a gold jacket. To this day, he's still widely considered to be the best player to ever put on a Jaguars uniform. Today, we're telling the story of Tony Baselli. First, I'll tell you about Tony's beginnings, and then coming up, we'll have some pieces from an interview I did with Tony earlier this year. Our main source on Tony's early life is a great profile written by Jill Lieber for Sports Illustrated in 1995. And 90s Sports Illustrated, man, that was the good stuff. So let's jump in. Tony Baselli Jr. was born in Modesto, California in 1972, but his family moved to Colorado shortly afterwards. Tony's dad, Tony Sr., was starting up a handful of McDonald's franchises there. Tony begged and begged his dad to play Pop Warner, but he was a year too young. Finally, his dad gave in. He fudged the application a little bit, lied about Tony's age, and they were good. But he didn't do that just to get his son to shut up. Tony Sr. really believed in his son. He was a huge pillar of support in Tony's football journey. He would drive him to games, give him pep talks in the car, and the two of them would grade his playing performance afterwards. Then they'd go home after games and play more football with the neighborhood kids until the sun went down. Then more Nerf football inside the house after that. Ball was pretty much life. Once he outgrew Pop Warner, he was working at his dad's McDonald's franchises. Good time, great taste, that's why this is our place. taking out the trash, flipping burgers, working the drive through window. Eventually, he got reassigned to landscaping duty because he was eating too many Big Macs on the job. We're America's favorite, number one. Where else could you have so much fun? It's just one place, just one place you can go where it's fun to eat and talk and laugh and still get some change With the help of all those Big Macs, Tony played ball for Fairview High School in Boulder. His coach was Sam Pagano, father of Chuck. First, Tony wanted to play QB. The team tried that for a week. It wasn't happening. So Tony ended up right where he belonged, on the O-line. Tony was big, fast, and aggressive. He was a perfect fit as a lineman. When Tony was going into his senior year, he bulked up to 265 pounds after enlisting a personal trainer to help up his game. This glow up allowed him to dominate pass rushers, becoming a high school All-American and first team All-State. 
As a good Catholic boy, Tony always wanted to go to Notre Dame. But he never got the call. And committed to USC instead. Trojans head coach John Robinson and O-line coach Mike Berry knew Tony had a ton of potential. But having the size and athleticism wasn't enough. They wanted to see a more physical attitude out of him. They wanted a monster. So they rode him hard. And the tactic worked. The tough love turned Tony into a dog. Watch him here, number 71, the left tackle, critical left tackle. You see the quickness. Here's a kid, 325 pounds. He can get down the field and deliver a block on the move. Outstanding quickness for a kid, 325 pounds. Chris. There's no way to soft sell Tony Baselli. He's a great football player. He went All-American at both right and left tackle and was a three-time Pac-10 All-Academic from 1991 to 1994. John Robinson told Jill Lieber that Tony was the best college offensive lineman he ever had. Now the draft was approaching. Prior to the 95 season, the NFL added two new teams, the Panthers and the Jaguars. It's my pleasure to announce that the uh, membership has selected Jacksonville as the 30th NFL club. In the 1995 draft, these two franchises were looking to set the tone for their new teams. What better tone to set than using your franchise's first pick on a behemoth O-lineman? The Jacksonville Jaguars have selected tackle Southern California, Tony Baselli. You seem to almost pick Jacksonville as much as Jacksonville <laughs> picked you. Yeah, I mean, if it came down to it, this is where I wanted to be, so it was a perfect fit and it worked out. I'm just happy. I mean, I was nervous coming when the second pick came up, and I just really wanted everything to work out. What exactly did the Jags see in him to make him their number one pick? Tom Coughlin put it best. Well, I like his size and his speed and his great uh, ability to move his feet. Uh, he has the instinct of dominance. Uh, he has great character. He's focused, young man, mature. Uh, a great foundation building block for this franchise. Here's Tony. Like, people ask me all the time, do you wish you would have played for, like, the Cowboys or the Giants or some Steelers, like these historical teams? And like, people have told me, like, well, if you played with one of those teams, you'd already be in the Hall of Fame. I said, yeah. you know what? I wouldn't trade it for anything because – I have the honor and the responsibility of being the first pick of a franchise. Yeah. And like, like, and I take that seriously. Um, and, but I was terrified cause I was going to let him down. Um, like I realized when I was 23 years old and they made me the second overall pick, like they're like, you remember you it's were fucking scary. Pick. I was second. Yeah. I was second. I was second. Like you. And you know, I, second. I, people are always like, how'd that accomplishment feel? I'm like accomplishment. It felt like more of a fucking giant challenge. Yeah. I was like, I remember walking in. I'm like, and all I did like, Cause you hear about the bus yeah, you and I'm like, I never want to be considered. A, yeah. I, and I, and so like, there was this like fear, I guess, like, yeah. like overwhelming feeling of like, you can't let these people down. They're investing millions of dollars in their franchise on you. The Jaguars invested 17 million on Tony, a seven year deal. It made him the highest paid rookie offensive lineman ever. I was a first round pick. There's a lot of pressure that comes with that. I don't know that I can fathom being Tony Baselli. To make the first marks on a completely clean slate, a new franchise, that's insane. Can't even imagine it. Tony and the Jaguars were ready to start their first seasons in the NFL.
The long wait is over. There isn't a better football facility in America than Jacksonville Memorial Stadium. The refurbished Gator Bowl is today. The Jaguars play their first NFL game against the Houston Oilers. Tony Baselli was the second pick in the entire draft. Tonight at left tackle, he gets his first snap in an aggressive posture. Just like Reggie White's a force on defense, people believe that Tony Baselli can be a great left tackle. He's the kind of guy that they hope can solidify that offensive line. Well, the Jaguars, they didn't have the fastest start. They won four games in 1995, but the momentum picked up quickly. Come 96, they delivered nine wins, which was enough to send them to the playoffs. This was the moment Tony was waiting for, his time to shine, and boy, did he. We're playing the Bills in the playoffs. They're, they have four Hall of Famers, future Hall of Famers on their roster. Bruce Smith was defensive MVP. Yeah. And here we are, and our game plan like we like really simple like we we were one-on-one as offense tackles there was no sliding barely any chipping um and kevin gilbright the offense coordinator at the time basically looked at me and says you're gonna block bruce smith on sunday i'm like and that's it like that's all you could come up with and all the hundred hours of meetings you guys have as coaches like <laughs> <laughs> you're trusting me and so and i remember watching film on him as all of us do and i watched every game that year and no one had blocked him like he was just wrecking havoc, just killing people. And I remember walking out going like, here we go. We're going to find out whether you belong or not. And we battled. It was yeah. just a crazy one-on-one battle. Smith out wide, watch Baselli's feet. Hangs in there, gets the hand shot out. There's a great job against Smith. In tight against the run. It's a battle. Smith is getting frustrated. Baselli doing a good job. Is able to handle Bruce Smith. And in fact, Smith has even tried the bull rush. 327 pounds, you ain't moving him. He is frustrated, Mike. It's been all Baselli. And this is an unbelievable performance by a guy that is the best young tackle in the National Football League. This was his breakout game. Make no mistake about it. In a momentous back and forth, Tony dominated against a guy who was DPOI that year. Smith put up 13 and a half sacks and 90 tackles, but only three tackles in that game. The Jaguars won in an upset. Just a week later, they beat Tony Baselli's favorite childhood team, the Denver Broncos. That was a huge moment for Tony too, but their playoff journey ended the next week against the Pats, who would go on to lose to Brett Favre's Packers in Super Bowl 31. The Jaguars' Super Bowl dreams may have been over, but the tense rivalry between Tony and Bruce Smith had only just begun. We played a few more times in, the, in throughout his career, and, and we didn't have any relationship. Yeah. Like, I, like for a while, like he wouldn't even answer questions about me. That playoff game against Bruce Smith had been Tony's big debut in the limelight. Now he was on everybody's radar. Besides Bruce Smith, Tony had to line up against legendary guys like Reggie White and John Randall, but he always handled his business. His consistent stellar play helped lead the Jags to four straight playoff appearances from 96 through 99, including two AFC championship games. Tony's excellence was really a trickle-down effect. He helped Mark Brunell buy time in the pocket, and having that time allowed him to make big throws to Jimmy Smith. The whole offense flourished. Hit as he throws, going deep and goes into the arms of Jimmy Smith. He catches it for a big game. Here's a play that exemplifies what Tony brought to the table. Brunell, scramble. Going to be hit by the Bengals. Reynard Wilson right there. 
Bumbo, Hartrell Hawkins. He's gonna go all the way except Tony Baselli, the 300-pound tackle, makes the play and knocks him out of bounds. At 6'7", 320, Tony was built to play football, and he played angry. If you were a D lineman coming up against him, Tony wanted to put you in the dirt. If you watch his tape, there's a fire there, and that fire made him a beloved figure. He was the face of the franchise. Number 71 really meant something to the city of Jacksonville. Tony's name meant so much that Jacksonville area McDonald's started selling the Baselli Burger with three patties, very creative. The kid who had grown up sneaking Big Macs from his dad's restaurants now had his own burger. What a twist of fast food fate. Tony kept on dominating the league, but the good times can't last forever. Tony injured his shoulder during the 2001 season, and it looked like he was on his way out of Jacksonville. I was in a bad place. My shoulder was messed up. I'd had three, the surgery, the, the first surgery, they, I think it screwed it up more. Um, I had two more after that. I was working 12, 16 hours a day and rehabbing it. And it was terrifying because I could see the end. And I wasn't ready to be done. Like, I wanted to play more. Like, I loved the game. I, my, and my body was not letting me. And I was depressed. It was, it was like, like I was, I mean, we didn't talk about depression or mental health much back, you know, when I was playing, but if I would have gone and seen somebody, they'd probably like, like, dude, you're like clinically depressed. Like I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't, I mean, I was just obsessed with the fact that my career was over. And, uh, and so that was a miserable time. And I didn't want to leave that Jacksonville because of the injury and my cap number. Um, you know, I was the easy choice to, you know, send down the road to Houston. And the only thing that made it even manageable, and I know the McNair family gets all kind of heat in the press because of, you know, as owners of the Texans, but I'll tell you my experience with uh, Bob McNair has passed away since just one of the most gracious, like good dudes ever. Like I'll never forget. He brought me into his office with the GM head coach of Dom Capers head coach at the time, Charlie Cash was the GM. They all bring me in the doctors and trainers. And here's Bobby there in this big old conference room, big table. And I'm like, here I am, the player. They're paying all this money to that. They want to protect their rookie quarterback, and I'm freaking useless. And you know as a player how that feels. Like, could yeah, you feel like yeah, I'm dude. only here for one reason, and now I can't do it. And I'll never forget this. He he starts the whole meeting, and I'm thinking I'm they're getting ready to figure out how to get rid of me or force me to play or do anything, which I would have been happy to be forced to play. I begged them, they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't clear me. And he starts the whole meeting, he says, Hey, listen. I just want to let you know what we're, we're talking about today. I want to know what's best for Tony Baselli. Right. We are going to make a decision what is best for him. Not for the organization, not for anything else, but best for Tony Baselli. And that just, like that, like I was, I was so thankful because I was in such a, it was not a good time in my life that like, at least you felt like somebody was thinking about you. Ultimately, Tony wasn't able to overcome that shoulder injury. He wouldn't play another down. When all was said and done, he had five Pro Bowls and three first-team All-Pros to his name. He was also a member of the 90s All-Decade team. I mentioned this stat at the beginning, but it bears repeating. 15 and a half sacks allowed in 91 games. That's one sack every six or so games. It's absolutely incredible. In 2006, Tony was the first player to be inducted into the pride of the Jaguars, Jacksonville's Hall of Fame. He signed a one-day contract and officially retired as a Jaguar. Even in retirement, Tony's hung around the game, spending time with the Jaguars broadcast crew, Fox, Westwood One, 
Tony also spent plenty of time waiting to make the Hall of Fame. 16 long years of waiting. Out of those 16 years of eligibility, he was a finalist six times. This year, he finally made the cut. Well, you had the long wait. You kind of alluded to, you were kind of like, hey, everybody around me is crying every year. The last six, six years you've had to wait. And, uh, and you're like, aren't I the one that's supposed to be sad? Were you, were you <laughs> bummed about it? It's one of those things where you have no control over it. So you yeah. have a bunch of people judging your career yeah. and, and you know, you're competitive. You played, you know, we're all, we're all a little bit nuts and type a, and like, we like being in control and we like, like dictating life. Mm -hmm. And this is one you can't do that. Yeah. And, and, and part of it, you know, right or wrong, it's probably wrong. You feel like they're, when you didn't make it, they're telling you you're not good enough. Yeah. Um, and so, and your family wants it so bad. And so half the time, the worst part for me was watching everyone else be emotional. Yeah. And I'm like, listen, I'm like, can we just go out and have a good time mm -hmm. right now? Can we like stop crying mm -hmm. and do something else? So that was hard. And I think the, the hardest part, the, one of the hardest ones was last year when I didn't make it and not for me or any other reason it was a crazy year, COVID, you know, my wife had cancer a couple of times. She's, you know, good. But my dad, I knew um, last January when I got the phone call that I didn't make it, that my dad probably wouldn't make it through the year because he had mm -hmm. cancer. And um, that was hard because I wanted, he's such a big part of my life. Uh, and he was a big reason I did what I did in football and he helped me have success. So him not being around for this, that was really hard um, to like, just come to terms with that. And so um, that was probably the hardest part of this whole process last year. But as anyone will tell you, get to the hall of fame, once you hear your name and once they tell you you're in, it doesn't matter. Yeah, It's like, and this is whether you had to wait a long time or your first ballot, you're in the hall of fame. It's all that really matters. Once he got the word he was in, there were plenty of people Tony wanted to talk to. He had to keep it a secret, but he still told a few people, of course. The interesting thing is, you know, they voted all the way back on the 18th of January. Yeah. yeah. And and I found out on the 27th. Yeah. The video of Anthony Munoz going to knock on the door, but I couldn't tell anybody. Like the Hall of Fame's like, you can't tell anybody until honors. Right. So like there's this two week period where I'm just sitting around. I'm like, I'm in the Hall of Fame, but I really can't tell anybody. Like my wife and like our super close friends that helped like arrange the whole thing to get me into this, uh, get me over to the place where they're going to knock on the door. They knew. Um, so, but once I got in, there's a couple phone calls I made. I called my high school coach, yeah. um, Sam Pagano, um, whose son Chuck was the head coach of the Colts. Um, I called my first offensive line coach at, um, at USC a guy yeah. named John Matsko, who's now the offensive line coach of the Washington, uh, commanders. I think they're called, I got to get their yeah, the name right for this year. Commanders yeah. for this year. Yeah. And I called my, uh, the offensive line coach I finished my career with, um, at, uh, SC Mike Berry and then Tom Coughlin. Yeah. So those are like the calls, like, cause I want to like my whole view of this thing is like, I don't think anyone, whether it's the hall of fame success in business, um, getting to the NFL all by itself, no one gets there by themselves. Like we all like in this, our culture, we all want to pound our chest and say, look what I did. And the hall of fame is like the biggest individual honor you can have, but I'm just a firm believer. Like none of us get have success in life by ourselves. It's right. impossible. Um, and as I look back over life and th this has been a, a lot of reflection by me is like, one, I didn't make myself six, seven in athletic. That was a gift of God that he smiled on me for whatever reason. Um, and 
he put great people in my life. That's what I'm thankful for. Like when I showed him to SC, I couldn't even, I never had run block in my life. I mean, pass block in my life. We mm-hmm. ran like a wing T mm-hmm. in high school. And John Masco taught me how to pass block. Pat Harlow, who's a former first rounder, was a senior at SC and taught me how to play, helped me learn how to play the game of football. My high school coach moved me to offensive line. I wanted to play quarterback like every other damn kid in America. He made me an offensive lineman. My dad, um, you know, lied for me when I was eight years old uh, so I could go play padded Pop Warner because he had to be nine years old in Colorado. And I was begging him and driving crazy. I mean, like, just go back and reflect and, like, the people's fingerprints that are on my life that helped me become who I am. Yeah. Um, I'm so thankful for that. Tony had a lot of great people on his side throughout his career. He also had some formidable opponents. One of those opponents ended up switching sides. When I came out, I had no idea who was introducing me at honors. No clue. Yeah. Like, cause every other hall of famer, like someone played from their organization yeah. is in the hall of fame. Like there's no Jaguars, right. like there's no one else. And so I had no idea what they were going to do, so I walk out, it's Bruce Smith. If you faced this man on the offensive line, you knew he was destined for Canton. One of the most dominant tackles of the 1990s and the first ever Jacksonville Jaguar, Tony Vaselli. And I'm like, okay, this is really damn cool, first yeah. of all. And probably one of my favorite moments is he comes up on stage afterwards and all, with all the other Hall of Famers, and he came and gave me a big hug and said, "Welcome to the team. Welcome right. to Hall of Fame." Like, and there's, and as a player, like you don't have to like me, and I don't have to like you, but I want respect, and you want my respect. That's it. And that's like the greatest thing about the game of football. Like, you can beat the shit out of each other for sixty minutes and just try to kill each other, but all I want at the end is your respect. And all you want is my respect. Like we go, we went and played the game the right way. And so the battle with him and to have him introduce me was, it was awesome. That was a really great moment. Unfortunately, more recently, Bruce Smith had made some public comments as to the qualifications that got Tony into the hall, but they're supposedly cool. I'm sure they have great respect for each other and uh, water under the bridge, right? On to Canton. Luckily, there was something else in store for Tony. His family and friends put together one of the most special surprises you could imagine. So like Thursday night after honors, the Jaguars and my wife like hosted this party at USC Yeah, uh, for me and had a bunch of old teammates and everything else. And they did this video, like people like saying nice things, but you know, my friend, my friends, half of them were giving digs at me mm-hmm. in the video with good fun stuff. But at the end, um, all of a sudden my dad pops up on the screen. Right. And my wife and my good friend, a guy named Eric Murphy, convinced my dad 12 days before he died to make a video congratulating me to making the Hall of Fame. And they said, and he didn't want to do it because my dad pride, like, you know, strong and like pride and didn't want to admit that he was dying. And they convinced him to do it. And so all of a sudden I'm sitting in this room in this video of all these like light moments of people saying nice things, joking. My dad comes up on the video and and dude, I couldn't even watch it. And all I remember, I, I got to go back and watch it. I, cause I couldn't get through it. Um, when it was playing, all I remember is he said, I'm, I'm so proud of you. Mm. And like that, what else does a son want to hear, but their dad to say they're proud of him. And so that like that moment right there. And the fact that my wife and my good friend thought of doing that, it was just, it was magical. 
I think if the objective of the Hall of Fame is to include the best players that ever played the game, Tony's in. So it really doesn't matter if he was out there for seven years. Think about guys like Sterling Sharp, Terrell Davis, guys that should probably be in the conversation for the Hall of Fame if they aren't already in. They played shorter careers. As a guy who played 11 years in the NFL and never played at the level of somebody like Tony Baselli, when you see a Hall of Famer on the field, you know it. And I think if I had played Tony Baselli, it would have been readily apparent to me that he belonged in Canton. So I'm happy he's in the Hall of Fame. And as a final note, Tony is carrying on a tradition his father started way back in the 70s. He and his best buddy, Mark Brunell, own every Whataburger franchise in Jacksonville, Florida. Once again, I'm Chris Long, and this is American Prodigies Becoming Great. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Check back next week for a new episode. Thank you so much for listening. Be great out there.